You're listening to the 191st Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. From the Conference Center Theater in Salt Lake City, Utah, this is the Sunday afternoon session of the 191st Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square from previous general conferences. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Sunday afternoon session of the 191st Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at the conference, has asked me to conduct this session. We extend our greetings to members of the Church and friends everywhere who are participating in the conference on this Easter Sunday. The music for this session, which was previously recorded, will be by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square under the direction of Mac Wilberg and Ryan Murphy with various organists. The choir will open this meeting by singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Randy D. Funk of the Seventy.
Our dear Father in heaven, on this beautiful Easter Sunday, we are grateful to gather together. We thank Thee for Thy love and for the gift of Thy Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for His atoning sacrifice and for His resurrection that we remember this day. We're grateful for our dear prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, his counselors and the Quorum of the Twelve, who have taught us this weekend how to have an increase in faith in Thee and Thy Son. We're grateful for their messages of hope and of joy. And now, as we begin this concluding session of this worldwide conference, we pray for Thy Spirit to be with all who will participate who will participate, and with each of us, may we go forth with a greater desire to serve Thee and keep Thy commandments and draw closer to Thee and Thy Son. We humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The choir will now favor us with He Sent His Son. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the First Presidency. He will be followed by Elder Ronald A. Rasband of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Elder Timothy J. Dykes of the Seventy will then address us.
In this troubled time, I have felt to speak about the inspired Constitution of the United States. This Constitution is of special importance to our members in the United States, but it is also a common heritage of constitutions around the world. A Constitution is the foundation of government. It provides structure and limits for the exercise of government powers. The United States Constitution is the oldest written Constitution still in force today. Though originally adopted by only a small number of colonies, it soon became a model worldwide. Today, every nation except three have adopted written constitutions. In these remarks, I do not speak for any political party or other group. I speak for the United States Constitution, which I have studied for more than 60 years. I speak from my experience as a law clerk to the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. I speak from my 15 years as a professor of law and my three and a half years as a justice on the Utah Supreme Court. Most importantly, I speak from 37 years as an apostle of Jesus Christ responsible to study the meaning of the divinely inspired United States Constitution to the work of His restored Church. The United States Constitution is unique because God revealed that He established it for the rights and protection of all flesh. That is why this Constitution is of special concern for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints throughout the world. Whether or how its principles should be applied in other nations of the world is for them to decide. What was God's purpose in establishing the United States Constitution? We see it in the doctrine of moral agency. In the first decade of the restored Church, its members on the western frontier were suffering private and public persecution. Partly this was because of their opposition to the human slavery then existing in the United States. In these unfortunate circumstances, God revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith eternal truths about his doctrine. God has given his children moral agency, the power to decide and to act. The most desirable condition for the exercise of that agency is maximum freedom for men and women to act according to their individual choices. Then, the Revelation explains, every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Therefore, the Lord revealed, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. This obviously means that human slavery is wrong. And according to the same principle, it is wrong for citizens to have no voice in the selection of their rulers or the making of their laws. Our belief that the United States Constitution was divinely inspired 
does not mean that divine revelation dictated every word and phrase, such as the provisions allocating the number of representatives from each state or the minimum age of each. The Constitution was not a fully grown document, said President J. Reuben Clark. On the contrary, he explained, we believe it must grow and develop to meet the changing needs of an advancing world. For example, inspired amendments abolished slavery and gave women the right to vote. However, we do not see inspiration in every Supreme Court decision interpreting the Constitution. I believe the United States Constitution contains at least five divinely inspired principles. First is the principle that the source of government power is the people. In a time when sovereign power was universally assumed, assumed to come from the divine right of kings or from military power, attributing sovereign power to the people was revolutionary. Philosophers had advocated this, but the United States Constitution was the first to apply it. Sovereign power in the people does not mean that mobs or other groups of people can intervene to intimidate or force government action. The Constitution established a constitutional democratic republic where the people exercise their power through their elected representatives. A second inspired principle is the division of delegated power between the nation and its subsidiary states. In our federal system, this unprecedented principle has sometimes been altered by inspired amendments, such as those abolishing slavery and extending voting rights to women mentioned earlier. Significantly, the United States Constitution limits the national government to the exercise of powers granted expressly or by implication, and it reserves all other government powers, quote, to the states respectively or to the people, end of quote. Another inspired principle is the separation of powers. Well over a century before our 1787 Constitutional Convention, the English Parliament pioneered the separation of legislative and executive authority when they wrested certain powers from the king. The inspiration in the American Convention was to delegate independent executive, legislative, and judicial powers so these three branches could exercise checks upon one another. A fourth inspired principle is in the cluster of vital guarantees of individual rights and specific limits on government authority in the Bill of Rights, adopted by amendment just three years after the Constitution went into force. A Bill of Rights was not new. Here, the inspiration was in the practical implementation of principles pioneered in England, beginning with the Magna Carta. The writers of the Constitution were familiar with these because some of the colonial charters had such guarantees. Without a Bill of Rights, America could not have served as the host nation 
for the restoration of the gospel, which began just three decades later. There was divine inspiration in the original provision that there should be no religious test for public office. But the addition of the religious freedom and anti-establishment guarantees in the First Amendment was vital. We also see divine inspiration in the First Amendment's freedoms of speech and press and in the personal protections in other amendments such as for criminal prosecutions. Fifth and finally, I see divine inspiration in the vital purpose of the entire Constitution. We are to be governed by law and not by individuals. And our loyalty is to the Constitution and its principles and processes, not to any office holder. In this way, all persons are to be equal before the law. These principles block the autocratic ambitions that have corrupted democracy in some countries. They also mean that none of the three branches of government should be dominant over the others or prevent the others from performing their proper constitutional functions to check one another. Despite the divinely inspired principles of the United States Constitution, when exercised by imperfect mortals, their intended effects have not always been achieved. Important subjects of lawmaking, such as some laws governing family relationships, have been taken from the states by the federal government. The First Amendment guarantee of free speech has sometimes been diluted by suppression of unpopular speech. The principle of separation of powers has always been under pressure with the ebb and flow of one branch of government exercising or inhibiting the powers delegated to another. There are other threats that undermine the inspired principles of the United States Constitution. The stature of the Constitution is diminished by efforts to substitute current societal trends as the reason for its founding instead of liberty and self-government. The authority of the Constitution is trivialized when candidates or officials ignore its principles. The dignity and force of the Constitution is reduced by those who refer to it like a loyalty test or a political slogan instead of its lofty status as a source of authorization for and limits on government authority. Our belief in divine inspiration gives Latter-day Saints a unique responsibility to uphold and defend the United States Constitution and principles of constitutionalism wherever we live. We should trust in the Lord and be positive about this nation's future. What else are faithful Latter-day Saints to do? We must pray for the Lord to guide and bless all nations and their leaders. This is part of our article of faith. Being subject to presidents or rulers, of course, poses no obstacle to our opposing individual laws or policies. 
it does require that we exercise our influence civilly and peacefully within the framework of our constitutions and applicable laws. On contested issues, we should seek to moderate and unify. There are other duties that are part of upholding the inspired Constitution. We should learn and advocate the inspired principles of the Constitution. We should seek out and support wise and good persons who will support those principles in their public actions. We should be knowledgeable citizens who are active in making our influence felt in civic affairs. In the United States and in other democracies, political influence is exercised by running for office, which we encourage, by voting, by financial support, by membership and service in political parties, and by ongoing communications to officials, parties, and candidates. To function well, a democracy needs all of these, but a conscientious citizen does not need to provide all of them. There are many political issues, and no party, platform, or individual candidate can satisfy all personal preferences. Each citizen must therefore decide which issues are most important to him or her at any particular time. Then members should seek inspiration on how to exercise their influence according to their individual priorities. This process will not be easy. It may require changing party support or candidate choices, even from election to election. Such independent actions will sometimes require voters to support candidates or political parties or platforms whose other positions they cannot approve. That is one reason we encourage our members to refrain from judging one another in political matters. We should never assert that a faithful Latter-day Saint cannot belong to a particular party or vote for a particular candidate. We teach correct principles and leave our members to choose how to prioritize and apply those principles on the issues presented from time to time. We also insist, and we ask our local leaders to insist, that political choices and affiliations not be the subject of teachings or advocacy in any of our church meetings. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will, of course, exercise its right to endorse or oppose specific legislative proposals that we believe will impact the free exercise of religion or the essential interests of church organizations. I testify of the divinely inspired Constitution of the United States and pray that we who recognize the divine being who inspired it will always uphold and defend its great principles. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, dear President Oaks, for that most important message. My dear brothers and sisters, what a privilege it is to stand before you today. 
united with those who have already addressed this conference, I testify to you that Jesus Christ lives. He directs his church. He speaks to his prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, and he loves all Heavenly Father's children. On this Easter Sunday, we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. His atonement, culminating with his resurrection after three days in a borrowed tomb, stands as the greatest miracle in human history. For behold, he pronounced, I am God, and I am a God of miracles. Have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven and hath sat down on the right hand of God? The prophet Mormon asked in the Book of Mormon. He answers, Nay, neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men. Following the crucifixion, an angel of the Lord appeared to Mary, who with a few other women had gone to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. The angel said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen. The Book of Mormon prophet Abinadi proclaimed of that miracle, If Christ had not risen from the dead, there could have been no resurrection. But there is a resurrection. Therefore the grave hath no victory, and the sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. The miraculous acts of Jesus Christ caused the early disciples to exclaim, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. As the early apostles followed Jesus Christ and heard him teach the gospel, they witnessed many miracles. They saw the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Miracles, signs, and wonders abound among followers of Jesus Christ today in your lives and in mine. Miracles are divine acts, manifestations, and expressions of God's limitless power and an affirmation that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, who created the seas, can calm them. He who gave sight to the blind can lift our sights to heaven. He who cleansed the lepers can mend our infirmities. He who healed the impotent man can call for us to rise up with come follow me. Many of you have witnessed miracles, more than you realize. They may seem small in comparison to Jesus raising the dead, but the magnitude does not distinguish a miracle, only that it came from God. Some suggest miracles are simply coincidences or sheer luck, but the prophet Nephi condemned those who would put down the power and miracles of God and preach up unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning that they may get gain. Miracles are wrought by divine power by he who is mighty to save. 
Miracles are extensions of God's eternal plan. Miracles are a lifeline from heaven to earth. Last fall, Sister Rasband and I were on our way to Goshen, Utah, for a worldwide face-to-face, an event being broadcast to over 600,000 people in 16 different languages. The program was to focus on the events of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with questions submitted by young adults from around the world. Sister Rasband and I had personally reviewed the questions. They gave us the opportunity to testify of Joseph Smith as a prophet of God, the power of revelation in our lives, ongoing restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and truths and commandments that we treasure. Many listening today were part of that miraculous event. Initially, the broadcast was to originate in the Sacred Grove in upstate New York, where Joseph Smith testified, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. That, brothers and sisters, was a miracle. The worldwide pandemic forced us to relocate the broadcast to Goshen, Utah, where the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has recreated for filming a section of Old Jerusalem. Sister Rasband and I were within a few miles of Goshen that Sunday evening when we saw thick smoke coming from the direction of our destination. Wildfires were blazing in the area, and we worried the broadcast might be at risk. Sure enough, at 20 minutes to 6, our broadcast time, the power in the entire complex went out. No power, no broadcast. There was one generator that some thought we might be able to power up, but there was no assurance it could sustain the sophisticated equipment at hand. All of us on the program, including narrators, musicians, and technicians, even 20 young adults from our own extended family, were fully invested in what was to take place. I stepped away from their tears and confusion and pleaded with the Lord for a miracle. Heavenly Father, I prayed, I have rarely asked for a miracle, but I am asking for one now. This meeting must happen for all our young adults around the world. We need the power to go on if it be thy will. Seven minutes after six, as quickly as the power had gone out, it came back on. Everything started working from the music and microphones to the videos and all the transmission equipment. We were off and running. We had experienced a miracle. As Sister Rasband and I were in the car returning home later that evening, President and Sister Nelson texted us with this message. Ron, we want you to know that as soon as we heard the power was out, we prayed for a miracle. In Latter-day Scripture it is written, For I, the Lord, have put forth my hand to exert the powers of heaven. 
Ye cannot see it now, yet a little while, and ye shall see it, and know that I am, and I will come and reign with my people. That is exactly what happened. The Lord had put forth his hand, and the power came on. Miracles are worked through the power of faith, as President Nelson so powerfully taught us in the last session. The prophet Moroni exhorted the people, If there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. Wherefore he showed not himself until after their faith. He continues, Behold, it was the faith of Alma and Amulek that caused the prison to tumble to the earth. Behold, it was the faith of Nephi and Lehi that wrought the change upon the Lamanites, that they were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Behold, it was the faith of Ammon and his brethren which wrought so great a miracle among the Lamanites. And neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith. Wherefore, they first believed in the Son of God. I could add to that sequence of scriptures. It was the faith of earnest young adult performers, broadcast professionals, church leaders and members, an apostle and a prophet of God that sought so great a miracle that the power was restored to a remote movie set in Goshen, Utah. Miracles can come as answers to prayers. They are not always what we ask for or what we expect. But when we trust in the Lord, he will be there and he will be right. He will suit the miracle to the moment we need it. The Lord performs miracles to remind us of his power, his love for us, his reach from the heavens to our mortal experience, and his desire to teach of that which is of most worth. He that hath faith in me to be healed, he said to the saints in 1831, and the promise continues today, and is not appointed unto death, shall be healed. There are laws decreed in the heavens, and we are always subject to them. There are times we hope for a miracle to heal a loved one, to reverse an unjust act or soften the heart of a bitter or disillusioned soul. Looking at things through mortal eyes, we want the Lord to intervene to fix what is broken. Through faith, the miracle will come, though not necessarily on our timetable or with the resolution we desired. Does that mean we are less than faithful or do not merit his intervention? No, We are beloved of the Lord. He gave his life for us, and his atonement continues to release us from burdens and sin as we repent and draw close to him. The Lord has reminded us, Neither are your ways my ways, he offers. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from worry, disappointment, fear, disobedience, concern for loved ones, for lost or broken dreams. Peace amidst confusion or sorrow is a miracle. Remember the Lord's words, Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? 
What greater witness can you have than from God? The miracle is that Jesus Christ, the great Jehovah, the Son of the Highest, is responding with peace. Just as he appeared to Mary in the garden, calling her by name, he calls to us to exercise our faith. Mary was looking to serve him and care for him. His resurrection was not what she expected, but it was according to the great plan of happiness. Come down from the cross, the crowd of non-believers jeered at him on Calvary. He could have performed such a miracle, but he knew the end from the beginning, and he intended to be faithful to his Father's plan. That example should not be lost on us. To us in times of trial, he has said, Behold the wounds which pierced my side, and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. That, brothers and sisters, is the miracle promised to all of us. On this Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the miracle of our Lord's resurrection, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I humbly pray that you will feel the power of the Redeemer in your life, that your appeals to our Heavenly Father will be answered with the love and commitment Jesus Christ demonstrated throughout his ministry. I pray that you may stand steadfast and faithful in all that is to come, and I bless you that miracles will attend you as we experienced in Goshen, if it be the Lord's will. Look for these heaven-sent blessings in your life as you seek this Jesus, of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of them, may be and abide in you forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I rejoice with you on this blessed Easter Sunday in contemplating the glorious light that dawned on the earth with the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. During his mortal ministry, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Spirit of Christ is in all things and giveth life to all things. It conquers the darkness that otherwise would surround us. Years ago, in search of adventure, my two sons and I accompanied a young men's group to the Moaning Cavern, so named for a sound that at one time echoed out of its mouth. The cavern is a chimney cave which opens into a 180-foot-deep vertical chamber, the largest single cave chamber in California. There are only two ways down, the safe circular staircase or repelling to the cavern's floor. My sons and I chose to repel. My older son went first, while I and my younger son purposely went last, so that we could descend together. After our guides instructed and secured us with harness and belay gear to a strong rope, we inched backward until we stood on a small ledge and gathered our confidence, as this was the last place to turn around and the last place we could see any sunlight from the mouth of the cave. Our next step plunged us backwards into a cathedral cavern so tall and wide that it could swallow the entire Statue of Liberty. 
There we dangled in a slow spin as our eyes adjusted to the relative darkness. As we continued our descent, the glow of electric lights illuminated an amazing wall of glistening stalagmites and stalactites. Without warning, the lights went suddenly completely out. Suspended above the abyss, we were engulfed in a darkness so profound that we could not even see our hands on the ropes in front of us. A voice instantly called out, Dad, Dad, are you there? I'm here, son. I'm right here, I responded. The unexpected loss of light was designed to show that without electricity, the darkness of the cavern was impenetrable. It succeeded. We felt the darkness. When the lights did return, the darkness instantly surrendered, as darkness must always surrender to even the faintest light. My sons and I have been left with a memory of a darkness we had never known. A greater appreciation for light we will never forget, and the assurance that we are never all alone in the dark. Our descent into that cavern in some ways parallels our journey through mortality. We departed from the glorious light of heaven and descended through a veil of forgetfulness to a darkened world. Our Heavenly Father did not abandon us to darkness, but promised us light for our journey through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We know that sunlight is vital to all life on earth. Equally vital to our spiritual life is the light that emanates from our Savior. In His perfect love, God grants the light of Christ to every person that cometh into the world, that they may know good from evil, and be prompted to do good continually. That light, revealing itself through what we often call our conscience, beckons us ever to act and be better, to be our best self. As we intensify our faith in Christ, we receive light in intensifying measure until it dispels all darkness that might gather around us. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. The light of Christ prepares us to receive the ministering influence of the Holy Ghost, which is the convincing power of God of the truth of the gospel. The third member of the Godhead, the Holy Ghost, is a personage of spirit. The greatest source of light that Heavenly Father imparts to you in mortality comes through the Holy Ghost, whose influence shall enlighten your mind and fill your soul with joy. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, through restored priesthood authority, you are baptized by immersion for the remission of sins. Then hands are laid on your head, and this wonderful, unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost is bestowed upon you. Thereafter, when your desires and actions are centered on the covenant path, the Holy Ghost, as a light within you, will reveal and testify of truth, warn of danger, comfort and cleanse, and provide peace to your soul. Because light cleaveth unto light, the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost will lead you to make choices that will tend to keep you in the light. Conversely, choices made without the Holy Ghost's influence will tend to lead you into shadows and darkness. Elder Robert D. Hales taught, When light is present, darkness is vanquished and must depart. When the spiritual light of the Holy Ghost is present, the darkness of Satan departs. May I suggest that perhaps this is the time to ask yourself, Do I have that light in my life? If not, when was the last time I did? Just as sunlight daily bathes the earth to renew and sustain life, you can daily brighten the light within you when you choose to follow Him, Jesus Christ. 
A drop of sunshine is added every time you seek God in prayer. Study the scriptures to hear Him. Act on guidance and revelation from our living prophets. And obey and keep the commandments to walk in the ordinances of the Lord. You will invite spiritual sunlight into your soul and peace into your life each time you repent. As you partake of the sacrament every week to take the Savior's name upon you, to always remember Him and keep His commandments, His light will shine within you. There is sunshine in your soul every time you share the gospel and bear your testimony. Every time you serve one another as the Savior did, His warmth is felt in your heart. Heavenly Father's light always resides within His holy temple and upon all who present themselves in the house of the Lord. His light in you is enhanced with your acts of kindness, patience, forgiveness, charity, and shows itself in your happy countenance. On the other hand, we walk in shadows when we are too quick to anger or too slow to forgive. As you keep your face towards the sunshine, the shadows cannot help but fall behind you. As you live to merit the companionship of the Holy Ghost, you truly increase your spiritual capacity to receive revelation. Life presents challenges and setbacks, and we all must face some dark days and storms. Through it all, if we let God prevail in our lives, the light of the Holy Ghost will reveal that there is purpose and meaning in our trials, that they will ultimately transform us into better, more complete individuals with a firmer faith and brighter hope in Christ, knowing that God was there with us in our dark days all along. As President Nelson is counseled, the increasing darkness that accompanies tribulation makes the light of Jesus Christ shine ever brighter. Seasons of our lives can take us to places both unexpected and undesirable. If sin has led you there, pull back the curtain of darkness and begin now to humbly approach your Heavenly Father with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and repent. He will hear your earnest prayer. With courage today, draw near unto Him, and He will draw near unto you. You are never beyond the healing power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. I come from goodly parents and from faithful ancestors who responded to the light of Jesus Christ and His gospel, and have blessed their lives and the generations that have followed with spiritual resilience. My dad often talked about his father, Milo T. Dykes, and shared how his faith in God was a light to him day and night. Grandpa was a forest ranger and often rode alone in the mountains, entrusting his life without question to God's direction and care. Late one fall, Grandpa was alone in the high mountains. Winter had already shown its face when he saddled one of his favorite horses, Old Prince, and rode to a sawmill to scale and measure logs before they could be sawn into lumber. At dusk, he finished his work and climbed back into the saddle. By then, the temperature had plummeted and a fierce winter snowstorm was engulfing the mountain. With neither light nor path to guide him, he turned Prince in a direction he thought would lead them back to the ranger station. After traveling miles in the dark, Prince slowed, then stopped. Grandpa repeatedly urged Prince forward, but the horse refused. With blinding snow swirling around them, Grandpa realized he needed God's help. As he had done throughout his life, he humbly asked in faith, nothing wavering. A still small voice answered, Milo, give Prince his head. Grandpa obeyed, and as he lightened his hold on the reins, Prince swung around and plodded off in a different direction. Hours later, Prince again halted and lowered his head. Through the driving snow, Grandpa saw that they had safely arrived at the gate of the ranger station. 
With the morning sun, Grandpa retraced the faint tracks of Prince in the snow. He drew a deep breath when he found where he had given Prince his head. It was the very brink of a lofty mountain cliff where a single step forward would have plunged both horse and rider to their deaths in the rugged rocks below. Based on that experience and many others, Grandpa counseled, The best and greatest partner you will ever have is your father in heaven. When my dad would relate Grandpa's story, I remember he would quote from the scriptures, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I testify that Jesus Christ is the everlasting light that shines in the darkness. There is no darkness that can ever suppress, extinguish, overpower, or defeat that light. Our Heavenly Father freely offers that light to you. You are never alone. He hears and answers every prayer. He has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you ask, Father, Father, are you there? He will always reply, I'm here, child of mine. I'm right here. I bear witness that Jesus Christ fulfilled Heavenly Father's plan as our Savior and Redeemer. He is our light, our life, and our way. His light will never dim. His glory will never cease. His love for you is eternal. Yesterday, today, and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. We invite you, wherever you may be, to join the choir in singing How Firm a Foundation. After the singing, we will hear from Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder Alan R. Walker, who is serving in the Central America Area Presidency and recorded his message previously. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will then address us. This is the Sunday afternoon session of the 191st Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. KSL Salt Lake City.
Throughout his ministry, President Russell M. Nelson has studied and taught of God's covenants with his children. He himself is a shining example of one who walks the covenant path. In his first message as president of the Church, President Nelson stated, Your commitment to follow the Savior by making covenants with Him and then keeping these covenants will open the door to every spiritual privilege and blessing available to women, men, and children everywhere. The ordinances of the temple and the covenants you make there are key to strengthening your life, your marriage and family, and your ability to resist the attacks of the adversary. Your worship in the temple and your service there for your ancestors will bless you with increased personal revelation and peace and will fortify your commitment to keep on the covenant path." What is the covenant path? It is the one path that leads to the celestial kingdom of God. We embark upon the path at the gate of baptism and then press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men, the two great commandments, to the end. In the course of the covenant path, which, by the way, extends beyond mortality, we receive all the ordinances and covenants pertaining to salvation and exaltation. Our overarching covenant commitment is to do God's will and to be obedient to His commandments in all things that He shall command us. Following the principles and commandments of the gospel of Jesus Christ day by day is the happiest and most satisfying course in life. For one thing, a person avoids a great many problems and regrets. Let me use a sports analogy. In tennis, there's something called unforced errors. These are things such as hitting a playable ball into the net, or double faulting when serving. Unforced errors are considered the result of a player's blunder rather than being caused by the opponent's skill. Too often our problems or challenges are self-inflicted, the result of poor choices or, we could say, the result of unforced errors. When we are diligently pursuing the covenant path, we quite naturally avoid many unforced errors. We sidestep the various forms of addiction. We do not fall into the ditch of dishonest conduct. We cross over the abyss of immorality and infidelity. We bypass the people and things that, even if popular, would jeopardize our physical and spiritual well-being. We avoid the choices that harm or disadvantage others and instead acquire the habits of self-discipline and service. Elder J. Golden Kimball is purported to have said, I may not have always walked the straight and narrow, but I try to cross it as often as I can. In a more serious moment, I'm sure Brother Kimball would agree that staying on, not just crossing the covenant path, is our greatest hope for avoiding avoidable misery on the one hand and successfully dealing with the unavoidable woes of life on the other. Some might say, I can make good choices with or without baptism. I don't need covenants to be an honorable and successful person. Indeed, there are many who, while not on the covenant path themselves, act in a way that mirrors the choices and contributions of those who are on the path. 
You might say they reap the blessings of walking a covenant consistent path. What then is the difference of the covenant path? Actually, the difference is uniquely and eternally significant. It includes the nature of our obedience, the character of God's commitment to us, the divine help we receive, the blessings tied to gathering as a covenant people, and most importantly, our eternal inheritance. First is the nature of our obedience to God. More than simply having good intentions, we solemnly commit to live by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. In this, we follow the example of Jesus Christ, who by being baptized showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbleth himself before the Father and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. With covenants, we're intent on more than just avoiding mistakes or being prudent in our decisions. We feel accountable to God for our choices and our lives. We take upon us the name of Christ. We're focused on Christ, on being valiant in the testimony of Jesus, and on developing the character of Christ. With covenants, obedience to gospel principles becomes rooted in our very soul. I'm familiar with a couple where, at the time of their marriage, the wife was not active in the Church and the husband had never been a member of the Church. I will refer to them as Mary and John, not their real names. As children began to enter the picture, Mary felt keenly the need to raise them, as the Scripture says, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. John was supportive. Mary made some important sacrifices to be home to teach the gospel on a consistent basis. She ensured that the family took full advantage of Church worship and activity. Mary and John became exemplary parents, and their children, all energetic boys, grew in faith and devotion to gospel principles and standards. John's parents, the boys' grandparents, were pleased with the wholesome lives and achievements of their grandsons. But because of some antagonism toward the Church, they wanted to attribute this success exclusively to the parenting skills of John and Mary. John, although not a member of the Church, did not let that assessment go unchallenged. He insisted that they were witnessing the fruits of gospel teachings, what his sons were experiencing in Church, as well as what was happening at home. John himself was being influenced by the Spirit and by the love and example of his wife and by the urgings of his sons. In due course, he was baptized, much to the joy of ward members and friends. While life has not been without challenges for them and their sons, Mary and John wholeheartedly affirm that it is, in fact, the gospel covenant that is at the root of their blessings. They've seen the Lord's words to Jeremiah fulfilled in the lives of their children as well as their own. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. A second unique aspect of the covenant path is our relationship with deity. The covenants God offers to His children do more than guide us. They bind us to Him, and bound to Him we can overcome all things. I once read an article by a poorly informed newspaper reporter who explained that the way we perform baptisms for the dead is to immerse rolls of microfilm in water. 
Then all those whose names appear on the microfilm are considered baptized. That approach would be efficient, but it ignores the infinite worth of each soul and the critical importance of a personal covenant with God. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Figuratively speaking, this gate is so narrow that it allows only one person to enter at a time. Each one makes an individual commitment to God and in return receives from Him a personal covenant by name that he or she can rely on implicitly in time and eternity. With the ordinances and covenants, the power of godliness is manifest in our lives. This leads us to consideration of a third special blessing of the covenant path. God provides an almost incomprehensible gift to help covenant makers be covenant keepers, the gift of the Holy Ghost. This gift is the right to the constant companionship, protection, and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Also known as the Comforter, the Holy Spirit filleth with hope and perfect love. He knoweth all things and beareth record of the Father and the Son, whose witnesses we commit to be. On the covenant path, we also find the essential blessings of forgiveness and cleansing from sin. This is help that can come only through divine grace administered by the Holy Ghost. Now this is the commandment, says the Lord. Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me, and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. Fourth, those pursuing the covenant path also find singular blessings in various divinely appointed gatherings. Prophecies of a literal gathering of the long-dispersed tribes of Israel to the lands of their inheritance are found throughout the scriptures. The fulfillment of those prophecies and promises is now underway with the gathering of the covenant people into the Church, the kingdom of God on the earth. President Nelson explains, when we speak of the gathering, we're simply saying this fundamental truth. Every one of our Heavenly Father's children deserves to hear the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord commands members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to arise and shine forth, that thy light may be a standard for the nations, that the gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes may be for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. There is also a weekly gathering of the covenant people to the house of prayer on the Lord's Day, that we may more fully keep ourselves unspotted from the world. It is a gathering to partake of sacramental bread and water in remembrance of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, and a time to fast and to pray and to speak with one another concerning the welfare of our souls. As a teenager, I was the only member of the Church in my high school class. I enjoyed the association of many good friends in school, yet I found that I relied heavily on this Sabbath gathering each week 
to refresh and renew me spiritually and even physically. How keenly we have felt the loss of this regular covenant gathering during the current pandemic, and how eagerly we anticipate the time when we can come together again as before. The covenant people also gather to the temple, the house of the Lord, to obtain the ordinances, blessings, and revelation uniquely available there. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, What was the object of gathering the people of God in any age of the world? The main object was to build unto the Lord a house whereby he could reveal unto his people the ordinances of his house and the glories of his kingdom and teach the people the way of salvation. For there are certain ordinances and principles that, when they are taught and practiced, must be done in a place or a house built for that purpose. Finally, it is only in pursuing the covenant path that we inherit the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ultimate blessings of salvation and exaltation that only God can give. Scriptural references to the covenant people often mean literal descendants of Abraham or the house of Israel. But the covenant people also include all who receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul explained, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Those who are loyal to their covenants shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. They are made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. These are they whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the Son, even the glory of God, the highest of all. Wherefore, all things are theirs, whether life or death or things present or things to come. All are theirs, and they are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let us heed the prophet's call to stay on the covenant path. Nephi saw our time and recorded, I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the Church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, And they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. With Nephi, my soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord. On this Easter Sunday, I bear testimony of Jesus Christ, whose resurrection is our hope and the assurance of all that is promised on and at the end of the covenant path. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The beautiful Latter-day Saint hymn, Hark All Ye Nations, unmistakably captures the enthusiasm and acceleration of the fullness of the gospel going to all the world. In this hymn, we sing, Hark all ye nations, hear heaven's voice, through every land that all may rejoice. Angels of glory shout the refrain, Truth is restored again. Louis F. Monk, the author of this jubilant text, was a German convert who wrote the inspired words for the hymn while living in Switzerland during his full-time missionary service in Europe. The joy that springs from witnessing the global impact of the Restoration is clearly articulated in the following words of the hymn. Searching in darkness, nations have wept. Watching for dawn, their vigil they've kept. 
All now rejoice, the long night is over. Truth is on earth once more. Thanks to the commencing of the ongoing restoration, just over 200 years ago, the gospel light of truth and love now shines brightly throughout the earth. The prophet Joseph learned in 1820, and millions more have since learned, that God giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Shortly after the organization of the church in this last dispensation, the Lord spoke to Joseph Smith and manifested his abounding love for us when he said, Wherefore, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven, and gave him commandments, that my everlasting covenant might be established, that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple unto the ends of the world. Soon after this revelation was received, Missionaries began to be called and sent to many nations of the world. Just as the prophet Nephi anticipated, the message of the restored gospel began to be preached among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was formally organized in a small log cabin in upstate New York in 1830. It took 117 years until 1947 for the church to grow from the initial six members to one million. Missionaries were a feature of the church from its earliest days, fanning out to Native American lands, to Canada, and in 1837, beyond the North American continent, to England. Not long after, missionaries were working on the European continent, and as far away as India and the Pacific Islands. The two million member mark was reached just 16 years later, in 1963, and the three million mark in eight years more. Highlighting the rapid growth of the church, President Russell M. Nelson recently said, quote, Today, the Lord's work in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is moving forward at an accelerated pace. The church will have an unprecedented, unparalleled future. Close quote. The restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the organization of the Lord's living church on the earth again, and its remarkable growth since then have made the blessings of the priesthood available throughout the earth. Sacred ordinances and covenants that bind us to God and set us on the covenant path clearly manifest the power of godliness. As we participate in these sacred ordinances for the living and for the dead, we gather Israel on both sides of the veil and prepare the earth for the second coming of the Savior. In April 1973, my parents and I traveled from our native Argentina to be sealed in the temple. Since there were no temples in all of Latin America at the time, we flew more than 6,000 miles each way, to be sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. Although I was just two years of age at the time and do not recall the entirety of that special experience, three very distinct images from that trip were fixed in my mind and have remained ever since. First, I recall being placed close to the airplane's window and seeing the white clouds below. Those beautiful, bright clouds 
endure in my mind as if they had been gigantic cotton balls. Another image that has remained in my mind is that of a few funny-looking characters at an amusement park in the Los Angeles area. Those characters are hard to forget. But of much greater importance is this brilliant and unforgettable image. I clearly remember being in a sacred room of the Salt Lake Temple, where ceilings of couples and of families are performed for time and for all eternity. I remember the beautiful altar of the temple and recall the bright sunlight shining through the room's exterior window. I felt then, and have continued to feel since, the warmth, safety, and solace of the gospel light of truth and love. Similar feelings were reaffirmed in my heart 20 years later when I entered the temple to be sealed once again, this time as my fiancé and I were sealed for time and for all eternity. However, on this occasion, we did not need to travel thousands of miles because the Buenos Aires Argentina Temple had since been built and dedicated, and it was just a short drive from our home. Twenty-two years after our wedding and sealings, we had the blessing of returning to the same temple. But this time, with our beautiful daughter, and we were sealed as a family for time and for all eternity. As I've reflected upon these very sacred moments of my life, I have been overwhelmed with profound, enduring joy. I felt then and have continued to feel the love of a compassionate Father in heaven who knows our individual needs and our heartfelt desires. In addressing the gathering of Israel in the last days, the Lord Jehovah said, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. I feel eternally grateful that from a young age the law of the Lord started to be engraved deeply in my heart through sacred ordinances in His holy house. How fundamental it is to know that He is our God, that we are His people, and that whatever circumstances surround us, if we are faithful and obey the covenants we've entered into, we can be encircled about eternally in the arms of His love. During the Women's Session of General Conference in October 2019, President Nelson said, quote, All our efforts to minister to each other, proclaim the gospel and perfect the saints, and redeem the dead converge in the Holy Temple. Close quote. Also during the same general conference, President Nelson taught, quote, Of course, the crowning jewel of the restoration is the Holy Temple. Its sacred ordinances and covenants are pivotal to preparing a people who are ready to welcome the Savior at His second coming. Close quote. The ongoing restoration has been marked by the building and dedication of temples at an augmented pace. As we gather on both sides of the veil, as we make sacrifices to serve and make the temple pivotal in our lives, the Lord is truly building us. He is building His covenant people. Oh, how glorious from the throne above shines the gospel light of truth and love. Bright as the sun, this heavenly ray lights 
every land today. I testify that the gospel light of truth and love shines brightly throughout the earth today. The marvelous work and a wonder foretold by the prophet Isaiah and seen by Nephi has taken place at a hastened pace, even in these challenging times. As Joseph Smith prophetically declared, the standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing till the purposes of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say, the work is done. Brothers and sisters, may we be willing and decide today to engage ourselves and our families in hearing heaven's voice, even the voice of our Savior. May we make and keep covenants with God which will secure us firmly in the path that leads back to his presence. And may we rejoice in the blessings of the glorious light and truth of his gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in October 1849, Elder John Taylor of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was called to open the nation of France for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His service included the editing of the first official church periodical in that country. Elder Taylor prepared and published an article in 1851 in response to frequent questions he had been asked about the church. And near the end of that essay, Elder Taylor recalled the following episode, quote, Some years ago in Nauvoo, a gentleman in my hearing, a member of the legislature, asked Joseph Smith how it was that he was enabled to govern so many people and to preserve such perfect order, remarking at the same time that it was impossible for them to do it anywhere else. Mr. Smith remarked that it was very easy to do that. How, responded the gentleman, to us it is very difficult. Mr. Smith replied, I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. Close quote. I pray that the Holy Ghost will instruct and edify each of us as I emphasize the important role of principles in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith that the elders, priests, and teachers of this church shall teach the principles of my gospel, which are in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, in the which is the fullness of the gospel. He also declared that Latter-day Saints should be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the law of the gospel, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand. Stated succinctly, a gospel principle is a doctrinally based guideline for the righteous exercise of moral agency. Principles derive from broader gospel truths and provide direction and standards as we press forward on the covenant path. For example, the first three articles of faith identify fundamental aspects of the doctrine of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. The nature of the Godhead in the first article of faith, 
the effects of the fall of Adam and Eve in the second article of faith, and the blessings made possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ in the third article of faith. And the fourth article of faith sets forth the first principles, the guidelines of exercising faith in Jesus Christ and repentance, and the first priesthood ordinances that enable the atonement of Jesus Christ to be efficacious in our lives. The word of wisdom is another example of a principle as a guideline. Please note these introductory verses in section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Given for a principle with promise, adapted to the capacity of the weak and the weakest of all saints who are or can be called saints, Behold, verily thus saith the Lord unto you, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. The inspired instruction that follows this introduction provides enduring guidelines for both physical and spiritual well-being and testifies of specific blessings contingent upon our faithfulness to the principle. Learning, understanding, and living gospel principles strengthen our faith in the Savior, deepen our devotion to Him, and invite a multitude of blessings and spiritual gifts into our lives. Principles of righteousness also help us to look beyond our personal preferences and self-centered desires by providing the precious perspective of eternal truth as we navigate the different circumstances, challenges, decisions, and experiences of mortality. The statement by the Prophet Joseph Smith about teaching correct principles is perhaps one of his most frequently quoted teachings. And we find powerful examples of this inspired pattern of instruction in the pronouncements of the Lord's authorized servants today. President Dallin H. Oaks spoke in General Conference in 1998 about Aaronic priesthood holders' duties related to preparing and administering the sacrament. He described the principle of non-distraction and indicated that a holder of the Aaronic priesthood would never want anything in his appearance or behavior to distract any member of the Church from his or her worship and renewal of covenants. President Oaks also emphasized the related principles of orderliness, cleanliness, reverence, and dignity. Interestingly, President Oaks did not provide for the young men a lengthy list of things to do and not to do. Rather, he explained the principle with the expectation that the young men and their parents and teachers could and should use their own judgment and inspiration to follow the guideline. He explained, I will not suggest detailed rules, since the circumstances in various wards and branches in our worldwide Church are so different that a specific rule that seems required in one setting may be inappropriate in another. Rather, I will suggest a principle based on the doctrine. 
If all understand this principle and act in harmony with it, there should be little need for rules. If rules or counseling are needed in individual cases, local leaders can provide them consistent with the doctrine and their related principles. Close quote. In the April 2015 General Conference, President Russell M. Nelson taught that the Sabbath is a delight. He also explained how he personally had come to understand a basic principle about honoring the Sabbath day. Quote, How do we hallow the Sabbath day? In my much younger years, I studied the work of others who had compiled lists of things to do and things not to do on the Sabbath. It wasn't until later that I learned from the scriptures that my conduct and my attitude on the Sabbath constituted a sign between me and my Heavenly Father. With that understanding, I no longer needed lists of do's and don'ts. When I had to make a decision whether or not an activity was appropriate for the Sabbath, I simply asked myself, what sign do I want to give to God? That question made my choices about the Sabbath day crystal clear. Close quote. President Nelson's simple but powerful question emphasizes a principle that cuts through any uncertainty about what it means and what we should do to honor the Sabbath. His question summarizes a guideline and standard that can bless all of us in our varied circumstances. Six months ago in General Conference, President Nelson described his personal elation as he was led to a new insight about the meaning of the word Israel. He told us that his soul was stirred as he learned that the very name of Israel refers to a person who is willing to let God prevail in his or her life. President Nelson then identified a number of important implications that derive from this insight. His message about being willing to let God prevail is a remarkable example of teaching correct principles so that we can govern ourselves. And just as he did in his message about making the Sabbath a delight, President Nelson posed principle-based questions that serve as guides and standards for each of us. Quote, Are you willing to let God prevail in your life? Are you willing to let God be the most important influence in your life? President Nelson continued, Consider how, how such willingness could bless you. If you are unmarried and seeking an eternal companion, your desire to be of Israel will help you decide whom to date and how. If you are married to a companion who has broken his or her covenants, your willingness to let God prevail in your life will allow your covenants with God to remain intact. The Savior will heal your broken heart. The heavens will open as you seek to know how to move forward. You do not need to wander or wonder. If you have sincere questions about the gospel or the church, as you choose to let God prevail, you will be led to find and understand the absolute eternal truths that will guide your life and help you stay firmly on the covenant path. When you are faced with temptation, even the temptation comes 
when you are exhausted or feeling alone or misunderstood, imagine the courage you can muster as you choose to let God prevail in your life and as you plead with Him to strengthen you. When your greatest desire is to let God prevail, to be part of Israel, so many decisions become easier. So many issues become non-issues. You know how best to groom yourself. You know what to watch and read, where to spend your time and with whom to associate. You know what you want to accomplish. You know the kind of person you really want to become. Close quote. Notice how many crucial decisions and life experiences can be influenced by the principle of being willing to let God prevail. Dating and marriage, gospel questions and concerns, temptation, personal grooming, what to watch and read, where to spend time, with whom to associate, and many, many more. President Nelson's inspired questions emphasize a simple principle that provides direction in every aspect of our lives and enables us to govern ourselves. When Joseph Smith was imprisoned in Liberty Jail, he wrote letters of instruction to church members and leaders and reminded them that a very large ship is benefited very much by a very small helm in the time of a storm, by being kept workways with the wind and the waves. A helm is a wheel or tiller and the associated equipment used to steer a ship or a boat. And workways with the wind and the waves denotes turning a ship so that it maintains its balance and does not capsize during a storm. Gospel principles are for me and you what a helm is to a ship. Correct principles enable us to find our way and to stand firm, steadfast, and immovable so we do not lose our balance and fall in the raging latter-day storms of darkness and confusion. We have been blessed abundantly in this general conference to learn about eternal principles from the Lord's authorized servants. Now, our individual responsibility is to govern ourselves according to the truths of which they have testified. President Ezra Taft Benson taught, quote, For the next six months, your conference edition of the Liahona should stand next to your standard works and be referred to frequently. Close quote. With all the energy of my soul, I invite all of us to learn, live, and love principles of righteousness. Only gospel truths can enable us to cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, to press forward on the covenant path, and to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. I know that the doctrine and principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ are the foundational sources of direction for our lives and of enduring joy in mortality and eternity. And on this glorious Easter Sunday, I joyfully witness that our living Savior is the fount 
from which these truths flow. I so testify and witness in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. At the conclusion of the conference, we express sincere appreciation to all who have worked so diligently to prepare for these services. We thank those who have spoken and those who have provided the uplifting music. The concluding speaker for this session will be our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. Following his remarks, the choir will close this conference by singing, Let Us All Press On. The benediction will then be offered by Sister Sharon Eubank, First Counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency, and the conference will then be adjourned. My beloved brothers and sisters, we have truly had a spiritual feast. How grateful I am for the prayers, messages, and music of the entire conference. Thanks to each of you for joining with us wherever you are. Early last year, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and our desire to be good global citizens, we made the difficult decision to close all temples temporarily. During the ensuing months, we have felt inspired to reopen temples gradually through a very cautious approach. Temples are now being opened in four phases, adhering strictly to local government regulations and safety protocols. For temples in Phase 1, qualified couples who have previously received their own endowment can be sealed as husband and wife. For temples in Phase 2, all ordinances for the living are performed, including one's own endowment, the sealing of husband and wife, and children to parents. We have recently amended provisions of Phase 2 and allow our youth, new members, and others with a limited youth recommend to participate in proxy baptisms for their ancestors. For temples in Phase 3, those with scheduled appointments may participate not only in the ordinances for the living, but also in all proxy ordinances for deceased ancestors. Phase four is a return to full regular temple activity. We are grateful for your patience and devoted service during this changing and challenging period. I pray that your desire to worship and serve in the temple burns more brightly now than ever. Now, you may be wondering when you will be able to return to the temple. Answer, your temple will be open when local government regulations allow it. 
when the incidence of COVID-19 in your area is within safe limits, your temple will be reopened. Do all you can to bring COVID numbers down in your area so that your temple opportunities can increase. Meanwhile, keep your temple covenants and blessings foremost in your minds and hearts. Stay true to the covenants you have made. We are building now for the future. Forty-one temples are presently under construction or renovation. Just last year, despite the pandemic, ground was broken for 21 new temples. We want to bring the house of the Lord even closer to our members, that they may have the sacred privilege of attending the temple as often as their circumstances allow. As I announce our plans to construct 20 more temples, I ponder and praise pioneers, past and present, whose consecrated lives have helped to make this history today. A new temple will be built in each of the following locations. Oslo, Norway, Brussels, Belgium, Vienna, Austria, Kumasi, Ghana, Beta, Mozambique, Cape Town, South Africa, Singapore, Republic of Singapore, Belo Horizonte, Brazil, Cali, Colombia, Querétaro, Mexico, Torreón, Mexico, Helena, Montana, Casper, Wyoming, Grand Junction, Colorado, Farmington, New Mexico, Burley, Idaho, Eugene, Oregon, Elko, Nevada, Yorba Linda, California, and Smithfield, Utah. Temples are a vital part of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness. Ordinances of the temple fill our lives with power and strength available in no other way. We thank God for those blessings. As we close this conference, we again express our love for you. We pray that God will shower his blessings and watch care upon each of you. Together we are engaged in his sacred service. With courage, let us all press on in the glorious work of the Lord. For this I pray in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
our beloved Father in heaven. Our hearts are filled and soaring with the power of this conference that concludes. We're so thankful for the light that comes from Jesus Christ and for mighty prophetic gifts that are among us. We thank thee for the energy and the light and the power we feel to go forth and do something different, and that each member of the church and each friend might have the remembrance of this time together that we can bring more light into the world. We thank thee for the great gifts that are here and pray that we might also offer our gifts in the world. We ask for a converting spirit and an enduring spirit to be with the generations, that when Jesus Christ appears, we can be like him. We thank thee for all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the Sunday afternoon session of the 191st Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square from previous general conferences. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. You're listening to the 191st Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.